On today's episode, we are going to be discussing how to teach your kids about money and finances. Now, if you don't have any kids, don't worry. The good news is there's so much overlap here in things that we could all benefit from learning. So we talk about the difference between being rich versus being wealthy and how to get the right money mindset. We talk a bit about pocket money, which probably does apply to your kids unless someone's giving you pocket money as an adult, which is amazing. In fact, we talk about how you can give yourself pocket money as an adult by investing. We also talk about how the move to a cashless world can affect our spending. Talk about how to guide your children so that by the time they reach 18, they are able to stand on their own two feet financially and hopefully you no longer have to pay the bills for them. That's the dream anyway. And we also talk a bit about how to avoid scams. So hopefully something for everyone here. Again, there's some really useful links in the show notes. Check those out. And we are talking to a author today so the link to that book which I highly recommend I would show you my copy but I lent it to someone I went to find it just a minute ago before I did the podcast and I've just realized that they haven't given it back so you know who you are I've just texted you to remind you to bring it back presumably they're enjoying it so much so check out that link again if you're finding this useful and so many of you are I love receiving your feedback it's so kind but if you want to not miss an episode you need to subscribe so hit the subscribe button if you're on YouTube and if you're listening on a podcast player just hit the subscribe button and you'll never miss an episode thank you so much for your support let's get into today's episode this podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change so on today's podcast, it's my absolute pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, Will Rainey, who is the author of a book that is about how to teach your kids about money called Grandpa's Fortune Fables. Hi, Will. Hi, good to be back on the show. It's really good to be back in the show. I've just been on the school run and my hands are so cold that I'm struggling to type anything. You are in a t-shirt looking pretty tanned and healthy. I think I can see a reflection of a palm tree in the awards that are on display behind you where are you and how next time we record the podcast i'm coming to your place basically sounds good so i'm actually in northern thailand so a place called chiang mai uh yeah so it's a beautiful place yeah overlooking rice paddy fields as we speak right now and it's it's about 28 degrees here okay most of our listeners don't like you right now (laughs) they're gonna like you because last time you came on the podcast we just had such great feedback because your book is about teaching children about money but Actually, I think almost all of the lessons in it apply to adults as well. And I'm sure you've found that before. And certainly when I read it, you know, that's what I found. For those that didn't listen to last podcast, give yourself a really quick intro. And then I want to get straight into, I'm struggling with teaching my kids about money. So I've got some questions for you, if that's all right. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. So I'm from the UK, but in 2014 moved to Asia. So I started in Hong Kong where I was head of investment strategy for a large consultancy firm. So I was advising big insurance companies and governments and retirement funds on their sort of millions, sometimes billions of investments. But then in 2019, my wife and I decided to take some time off corporate work. So we moved to Vietnam, a beautiful place called Hoi An. And whilst my kids were in school, so we're international school there, I wanted to have a project. And so I really wanted to teach my kids about money so that when they grow up, they could have this opportunity to take some time off corporate work or just do whatever they like, but just have that financial means. So I started to write some blogs to help parents 
teach their kids about just replicating the sort of bedtime stories that I was sharing with my kids. And then after a while, the sort of blog got more popular and the stories were being well received by parents that I put them into a book. And that's the book you mentioned, Grandpa's Fortune Fables, which was released sort of November 21. And it's gone really well. As I mentioned before the show, it's been translated into different countries coming out this year. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah, that's awesome. And if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see the awards in the background as well. But I think the reason that your book has done so well is partly for what I said, really, that, yeah, it's targeted towards children, but all of those lessons in the book apply to adults as well. And educating my children about finances is something that I'm focusing on massively at the moment because I've done all right educating myself about finances but I kind of learned the hard way coming from a net worth, a massively negative net worth and scraping out of debt and then into a positive net worth, which is great. But now I'm thinking, how do I teach my children about money? And they are eight, six and three. I've been doing a few things, but I've also been struggling with a few things as well. So one thing that I've been struggling with is, and I think is really important, is mindset or specifically the money mindset and like rich versus wealthy. How do you think about that? Because when I was growing up, we definitely weren't rich and we definitely weren't wealthy. I've said this on the pod before. I'm still not rich as what I would define, but I do feel wealthy because I I'm in control of my own time to a certain degree. I have a job or two jobs that I love. One medics money, one being a doctor. Back in the day, if I got like a bill for, if my boiler exploded and it was a thousand pounds, that would have been a big deal, right? Now it's not a deal if it happens, but it's not going to destroy me. So I'm not rich, but I do feel wealthy for those reasons. And also like I just took my kids to school. I love doing that. And I do that a lot, even when it's freezing and my hands, I don't know if you can see, but look at the ends. (laughs) (laughs) It's the two degrees here. But how do you think about rich versus wealthy? How can I explain that concept to my kids? It's a great question because when I was growing up, I didn't know there was a difference between the two. I thought they were just interchangeable. And I had that this notion of rich being, I used to watch a program called MTV Cribs. You might have seen it where it go around the famous people's houses and they've got six cars and millions of bedrooms and swimming pools. I'm like, that's what I want to be. I want to be like gold taps as well, man. Like the oh, yeah, you have gold taps. Yeah, yeah. And... I used to watch MTV Cribs. <laughs> yeah. So I loved it. And that's what I thought I wanted. And it wasn't until I got into like 20s and I started to read some stories about these people who are on that show and they're like in debt, bankrupt. They actually borrowed money to go on the show or buy their cars or they rented out the house just for the show. And so it was a bit of a facade about what they're appearing. So even these people who I thought had loads and loads of money were just giving off this impression. And so I think that's what so many people do, unfortunately, is have this kind of rich mentality of I earn some money, I've got money, and therefore I need to spend that money to show people that I've got stuff and I've got money. Or even if I don't have money, if I buy lots of stuff using debt, I can give off the impression that I've got money and I'm successful. And that's what's called a rich mindset. And it's really, really important that we show kids and everyone really that there's this other mindset, which is called the wealthy mindset. So rich is very outgoing. You can see it by people spending, but the wealthy mindset, as you mentioned, when asking the question is about having that security about money, looking after money for yourself, (laughs) not having to worry about money if the boiler breaks or And I think that's really important. But kids will never get to see wealthy when they're growing up. 
So that's why I was really, when I wrote the book, I had these characters. So I had this character, I've got this character called Richie Raccoon, who had loads of money. He's just as the sort of MTV Cribs equivalent. But I had this other character, which is his grandpa, who looked after his money, wasn't showy off about it. And then so when Richie Raccoon got into trouble, he actually went to grandpa and grandpa was like, oh, I can help you. And I'm going to show you how to look after your money. And what I really wanted to have these two different characters so that children can read the book and see that there's two different options. Because in the real world, they're only going to see the Richie Raccoons. They're not really going to see the grandpas. And every child that I've spoken to, you say, all right, who do you want to be like? And they all really want to be like grandpa and want to be wealthy and grow their money or their forest as the analogy uses in the book. So I think it's such a strong mindset to have that. I want some money, but I'm going to look after it. I'm going to grow my money over time and have that security. I think it's so important because it changes your actions, your habits, everything you're spending when you have that kind of mindset. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's really hard for kids. Like it took me a long time to get into that mindset. I remember when we were kids, we were just like normal working class family. We just had a normal car. And one of my friends, dad, bought, I'm showing my age here, bought a Sierra Cosworth. And I don't know if you know, it had this massive fin on the back. And we were just like, that is amazing. And then one day the engine blew up and he just couldn't afford to repair it. So it just sat in his driveway and eventually just rusted away. And I never really connected the dots at the time, but basically he must've just spent all of his free cash flow on the car. And then he developed like a 500 quid engine problem and he had no financial safety net in order to do it and i just remember when he bought it i was like wow that guy must be like really rich because that is like radical it's really hard for kids and adults to get your mindset right about that but i think yeah like the idea of financial safety net really important and the mindset it's just yeah i'm trying with my kids to do the mindset but it is hard because pretty much everyone we know has a shinier car than us yeah it's so hard it's ever it's a natural thing to compare yourself but to be able to say I'm saving some of my money, therefore I can't compare myself because they're probably not saving. And in, in fact, just letting people know that most people are using debt. They <laughs> say, so whilst they have that stuff, you have no idea if it's their money or how much they've got saved. So there's no point. Interesting on your point about the Cosworth, if your friend still has that Cosworth, they're worth about a hundred grand or something now I've heard. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I know, it just rusted away over 15 years. It was really sad. It was just in the driveway and just never, I don't know what happened to it, but yeah, it was a pretty classic car. But yeah, Sierra Cosworth with that massive fin, uh, check it out. We're showing our age there. Okay, so here's something else that I'm struggling with my kids is the concept of pocket money. Because my thinking is this, I don't give them pocket money, right? So I don't do it. And what I want them to try and learn is that money doesn't grow on trees. You have to like work for the money. So if they do a chore around the house, wash my car or something like that, then I pay them money for that. But I don't just give them pocket money because I think that's not something that I had. And it definitely taught me that you've got to work for money. But then on the flip side of it, I'm thinking, A, is that a bit stingy? B, they need to have some money to manage and they do and then see i just been a bit soft a lot of times so we went to harry potter world and we were in the gift shop and maybe they had seven pounds of car washing money in their thing literally you couldn't buy anything for seven pounds in the harry potter gift shop so should i have not let them buy anything because they haven't got enough money what i actually did was I actually got my own wallet out and literally topped it up so i think they ended up spending like 25 pounds on a harry potter pencil or something and i basically bailed them out and then i was like oh no no bailouts you gotta earn your own money and then 
So help me out. What did I do wrong? And should I just give them pocket money? Or what do you do with your kids? Yeah, so I do give my kids pocket money, but I've got an intention in the future to stop that and go for the working one. So the reason I say that is when they're young, I want to give them pocket money so they get something to practice with and they get to make these decisions all the time. Because my kind of view is about money. It's about your actions and your habits. I know I write a lot of blogs about all different types of money topics to help parents teach their kids. But actually, it's about some very basic action. So every time they get some money, encourage them to save just a little bit. So in the book, one out of every 10. So that when they're growing up, when they do get some money, it's that's just what I do. I've always just saved us. And so when they're young, I kind of want to just give them that little bit of pocket money to have those decisions regularly. And then as they get older, I'll say, well, I'm not going to give you any more pocket money. Go and, go and find a better way of doing that. But at the same time, I also give them opportunities to, to earn more money in the same way you mentioned, like cleaning the car or doing some gardening, stuff that I might have paid someone else to do anyway and give them that opportunity to earn more. So yeah, we kind of give them really little amount of money but i do believe when they're young just giving them lots of opportunities to make mistakes like you mentioned the harry potter thing i can understand that pressure and it's really hard for parents to say no we're not going to pay for that so what we do sometimes with our kids so for my kids what we do is we've given them a bit of pocket money but we give them strict rules about what we think that pocket money should be spent on in the sense of we only buy our kids toys on their birthdays and christmas and we said, we're not going to buy you any toys between the year, but we've got this pocket money. This pocket money is for yourself to buy toys. So we're, we're taking it away and we're quite regimented on that. So if you took your Harry Potter example, we would, and they didn't have enough money, maybe I, and they said they're going to save up for it, then I might buy it, but not give it to them until they've earned the money <laughs> to pay for it. So, cause they're going to miss out on those opportunities there and then, but I think that's, it's given that, and as my kids get older, I intend to give them a little bit more pocket money, but then give them more spending responsibility. So it might be casual clothes, for example, and say, all right, we're not going to give you, we're not going to go and buy you any more casual clothes, but we'll give you extra pocket money. So you can decide if you're going to buy your designer t-shirt or you're going to buy some cheaply t-shirts and have lots of them. That's up to you. But then they get to make those mistakes. They get to make those decisions. And so hopefully by the time they're 18, they're making all the sort of spending decisions. So it's using pocket money, to make decisions, make mistakes, but also start transferring money decisions from us to them gradually over time. And I say, when they get to like 13, we're going to be like, we're not going to pay for the cinema anymore, but we're also not going to give you any more money. Go find some ways of making money if you want to go to the cinema. So it'll be like a gradual sort of trend. Yeah, I like that. I think that one thing you said there, like you basically tell them what their savings rate should be because I think savings rate is so important. Like people come to me and, oh, should I tweak my investment portfolio to make a 1% gain here or get 1% gain here? And it's like, actually, the major determinant of your returns are going to be time, holding it for a long time, minimizing investment costs, using a well-diversified, low-cost portfolio, but also your savings rate. And they're like, oh, I don't even know what my savings rate is. I was like, go check that out. And then don't really worry about your portfolio. If you've got a global index tracker, you're on the right path, not advice, et cetera, et cetera. In case the regulators are listening. But yeah, and here is another thing that I struggle with. Happened the other day. And I'm going to do that. I can force a savings rate, I think. Because at the moment, they have like a piggy bank. And it's all in there. But if I get them to split like 10% out into a vault that they don't touch and then yeah. the piggy bank that they can touch, that's nice. But my son, what did he do? I think he, oh, he, we've got some palm trees and they just drop leaves all the time. Probably a familiar problem for you because you live in the <laughs> tropics. So he cleaned them up, gave him four pounds. And then he's like, I want to buy a Lego magazine. Went to the shop, Lego magazine, four pounds, like a direct correlation between work done, buying the magazine 
And then they were like, we don't take cash. And I was like, oh, no. So I just banged it on my phone. And then he didn't have four pounds in cash. He had five pounds. How, how like cashless, the cashless world, I don't know how kids are going to manage because it's just, you never really see the money. You just tap it there and then you get your bank statement at the end. And you're like, what did I really spend 60 quid in the Harry Potter gift shop? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's one of my biggest worries. And one of the reasons that I think it's now more than ever important that parents teach their kids about money. We have to be so much more proactive than we ever had to be in the past because we learn quite a lot of lessons just by using cash. As I say, when you go to a shop, you hand over the cash and you it's a transaction. You can see I give you the shopkeeper something, he gives me something back. Whereas today, we go into a shop, you just wave this card or a watch or a phone somewhere, and then you just get whatever. So kids are not seeing that something's being taken. They're just seeing a tap and suddenly you get this magic gift. And also they don't see that money's going. So when they hand over that four pounds in cash, they see it's gone. Whereas say, we have no idea where the money's gone. It's on a, you have to go and look on a screen on your phone to see how it is. And most people don't do that <laughs> until the end of the month and then they get the big surprise. So we need to be so much more proactive, but we also need to be realistic that we can't just keep giving our kids cash because A, we're going to not have any cash, not too distant future. And as you say, some places not even taking cash. So what we do is we still use cash at home, but we have fake cash. We have like in pocket money cash. So we still hand that out to our kids and give them that so they can see it's tangible. So we then, and as we can give them in small denominations, means we, they can then split it out into how much they want to save for the long term, how much they want to save for something they're saving up for, or how much they want to go and spend on something right now. And they've got all these the bits there. And then when they actually want to come to spending, so they say, all right, I want to go and buy this toy. And they say, all right, let's take the money out of the bit, the pot that you saved. I'll put that into my, my bank. And then we'll go to the shops together. So they're still seeing that transaction because they're handing over the fake pocket money or the rainy <laughs> version of pocket money to me. And then I'm giving them essentially the toy or whatever they've bought. So we're doing that. And again, it just gives them that idea of tangibility of money, learning about money, but also knowing that they can't use that money. They have to use the card and that's the way it's going to be when they're older. So I think just we have to be so much proactive, especially as it's so confusing for kids now because they'll play these computer games and in the computer games, they've got game digital money. And it's really hard to tell the difference between for a kid, what's the difference between this game money and real money? Cause they're just numbers on a screen. And I've heard some horror stories of kids racking up thousands of pounds of their parents' money on credit cards because they thought they were just playing a game and they thought it was just in-game money, but it was actually linked to their parents' credit cards. So yeah, some scary stories that we can avoid by, by helping kids learn about money and what's real, what's not. Yeah, I like that. You basically, you definitely need a visual, physical representation of the value. And and you basically, I mean, you're also demonstrating the one of the weaknesses of a fiat currency to them there, because you're just printing your own rainy yeah. dollars, telling them that it's worth a one real dollar, but it's not backed by anything at all. So yeah, <laughs> let's not go down the fiat currency rabbit hole, because uh, the, Bit the Bitcoin crew will just get way too excited, because that's their kind of one of their things, isn't it? Like fiat currency is not backed really by anything now you already mentioned this before and i think i know why you mentioned when your kids get to 18 you need to have completed the challenge of educating them about their finances and i also have that pressure because my kids have a stocks and shares junior isa and when they're 18 they get full control of that isa 
And it's not going to be a massive amount, but it's going to be an amount that I never had, which would have just helped me to get a leg up in life, really. And so that's why I do it. And I also do it because hopefully in the future, I can talk to them about investment decisions. And I want them to see that just by saving a small amount, a tiny amount, really, regularly over many years, they've made all this money for essentially by doing nothing. And hopefully they will continue that habit throughout their adult lives, but they get control when they're 18. So they might just be like, I'm having like the world's best 18th birthday party with all this money that my parents have worked hard to save up for. Yeah. Is that why you mentioned 18 and give me some tips? Cause I've currently got, so I've got 10 years with my eldest and I'm not sure how it's going, but yeah, there could be a massive party in my house in 10 years. FYI. Yeah. I've spoken to many parents and they don't set up junior ISs because they worry about that. They're like, I remember what I was like as an 18 year old. And if I got I don't know, a few thousand pounds, I would have had a right ball of time. And I think I can understand that sort of apprehension. And I've heard some horror stories. I've heard, so granny passed down some money to her 18 year old grandson and he went out and bought gold teeth. And I'm pretty sure that's not what she wanted from that money that she passed down. And a lot of that comes down to the 18 year old has never been taught about money has never thought about the money or planned for it. And therefore they become a bit like lottery winners and they just go out and spend sporadically and just want to enjoy that money as quickly as possible because they don't feel they've really earned it. It's just come to them overnight. Let's go spend. So I always say, if you want to do it, you have to tell your kids about the money so, to your point so they can see it growing, but give them loads of time and with encouragement from parents to, to start planning what they want to do with that money. And their plans might change over time. But once you have that in mind, that you can start guiding them. So if they say they want to go and buy a car, okay, brilliant. Right? Do you know what the cost of involved around cars, et cetera, or it might be towards a house. But also it allows, yeah, I say the kids to get that kind of ownership of the money. So I say to my kids, and I've mentioned this on the previous podcast, when I talk to my kids about money, I say, think of money like seeds. And if you plant some of those seeds, that's invest, they'll grow into these trees or blue trees as we call them and then you have this forest so every time they, my kids get some money they decide how much they want to plant in their sort of blue tree forests and we talk about how many trees they've got but it also allows me to say well in the future you're going to have lots of trees these blue trees when you get 18 are you just going to chop down all of your forest and because they've been learning about trees and environment and stuff at school the thought of chopping down these trees as makes them fearful they're like no we might take off some branches or may take down one or two trees but they really much want to look after this money that's growing and feel like they're growing it as well it's their trees their forests so i'm hoping that when they get to 18 they're going to keep some of their trees and keep planting keep investing as they get older into adulthood so i think it's all about giving time and preparation yeah definitely and i think like it's put pressure on me to focus on educating my kids because I've got a bit of money riding on it. And another thing I'm doing as well is I'm actually doing like a, I want to actually, not now because like eldest is only eight, but I want to use their junior stocks and shares ISA to teach them about investing. So I do that using an allocation. So they're basically got 80% in a low cost, globally diversified index tracker. So passive. Okay. Yep. They got 15% in an active fund. Okay. And they've got 5% in one single stock. And what I'm hoping to demonstrate there over the long term is passive low cost is going to outperform active and hopefully all of that will outperform the single stock. And so that's actually going to, I'm going to use it to say to them, look, you're now in control of your investments, but over the last 18 years, this is how a passive low cost track has performed. This is how an active fund has performed. And this is how a shares performed. 
And it's really fascinating to see it play out in real time because my eight-year-old's got eight years of under the belt, obviously. And hers is performing, as the textbooks would say, with the low-cost tracker outperforming everything else after costs taken into account. But my three-year-old, <laughs> she brought into the, the market in February 2020, just before COVID, lost a ton. But then the single share that I like, I'm, I'm rubbish at picking single shares. I don't own any single stocks, but the single share that I bought is literally 10x. So her portfolio is just, it's not working out right. But yeah, I don't know. What do you think about that? Because that's like a little a side experiment that I'm running for them. And that hope that, like I said, they can in the future that I want them to decide for themselves, active versus passive versus putting it all on one single share and rolling the dice, which I definitely do not advocate, except for my three-year-old daughter, who's an amazing, <laughs> she's an amazing stock picker. <laughs> oh, I love the experiment. I haven't done that myself, but I love the thought of splitting that out. So I have talked to my daughters about passive. So we're hundred percent in global equity diversified passive, but I like that little experiment and having the different allocation size so they can see that. But I think the key point is that you're showing them over time what's going on. So when they're, they are 18 and going to be taking the will in terms of their own financial future from there, they would have gone through and they would have seen the ups and downs, the what's worked, what hasn't worked. Because most people go into investing as adults, they put quite a bit of money in. And then the first time that the market crashes, they panic, get scared. They're not sure. Oh, this is the end of the world. We've got to sell, sell. Whereas already my kids are, so my kids are eight and 10, but they've gone through the COVID stock market going up. They've gone through cost of living crisis and other different the Ukraine war, et cetera. So they've seen the market bounce around when there's been these news events. And we don't really look at the market very often, but when I do, I try and point out because I just think that by that time, they'll just know that the best action is to take no action. And again, I think we talked about this in the last podcast about Mr. Lazy in the book. And it's just like, yep, the best action is just to do nothing. And the fact that they would have all of those memories because we've shown them. And I was also showing my kids the stock market app on the, the, my phone. And because it goes like red and green. And so it was red. And they're like, and I was like, brilliant. This is a great time. We can, when we do our monthly contributions, we're going to be paying more at the low cost it's gonna be fantastic and they're like yeah but dad you were really happy when it was green and going up and i was like yeah because our investments went up <laughs> and they're like so you're happy if it goes up or down and i'm like yes <laughs> and that's what gives me my advantage when compared to so many investors it's about having that long-term mindset and if i can get install that in my kids now i'm hoping that when they start investing for themselves when they're 18 they'll continue doing what we've been doing for many years yeah. And it's such a difficult mindset to get into. If your favorite clothes shop had a 30% off sale, you would be, people literally stand outside queuing up to get in because your favorite product is now 30% cheaper. Yet yeah. I find when the stock market has a 30% sale, which does happen, everyone's like, ah, I don't like it. It's not, I don't want to buy it at 30% discount. And yeah. Like you say, I love a stock market sale, especially if you're at the start of your investing career, you are buying 30% discount. And yeah, I love it. I don't market time at all. I just pound cost average in every month. But you're right. If you go on your app, I, the thing I like to do on the app as well is you like you look at the one day chart and it's red and down. You look at the one week chart and it's red and down. You look at the one month chart and it's one it's red and down. And then you zoom out to one year, five year, 10 year, you zoom out to 30 years and it's like, up and to the right strongly. It's just trying to say, look, over the days, the months or the years, it fluctuates. The volatility is the price that you pay for getting stock market returns. And if you can just 
ignore that and get a good, you need to get, you start with a good strategy. Right? So let's just caveat it with that. It's not a problem, but yeah, 30% off sale in your local shop. Everyone's there, 30% sale in the stock market and people are selling. And I'm like, what? Okay, I'll buy. Yeah, no, exactly. And exactly. If they can, can have that mindset, I think that's just puts your head of 90% of other investors that we see. Yeah. Like how much, I don't really check the stock market much at all. My yeah. investments just on autopilot, direct debit, but it sounds like you, and I don't really talk to my kids about it because they're probably a bit young to be honest, but it sounds like you do discuss big ups or big downs or big movements. Like how do you frame it? Yeah. So sometimes I do it as just, again, just as that education piece. So for example, when I first started talking to my kids about the stock market was just before COVID. So I've been investing since they were very young, but I think my eldest was about seven years old at the time. We we're in McDonald's in in Hong Kong at the time. And so I said to her, did you know you own some of this McDonald's? Because we own a global index fund and that's in there. And she got really excited. And I was like, yeah, you own a bit. And she's like, I own this chair and the, the table. And I was like, yep. And all those people queuing up to buy their burgers, some of that money they're giving to McDonald's, that belongs to you. And so she got really excited. And I was like, not just this McDonald's, but all of them around the world. And then we went to the Apple store, et cetera, and saw all that and I was like yep you own some of that as well so all that money's going to you so she's got this real sense of what she owns but then when COVID hit and I showed her the stock market going down as COVID but then I could use that and link it back to the story I talked and I said because everyone's at home locked up at home people aren't going out and buying their burgers they're not going out buying their Apple products etc and that's why the market's gone down and she could just really easily understand what's going on in that particular scenario again not all scenarios are as clear-cut as the COVID crisis because sometimes the market goes up and down a bit randomly but when there's these big events she can then relate to what's going on and what she should do and i was like as soon as people are out and about and buying allowed out of their houses they'll go back buying their burgers and then the stock market will go back up and that's exactly what happened pretty much shortly after started to get the vaccines etc so i just thought that those kind of like life lessons well, interesting. So I clearly, I'm the same as you. I don't look at the stock market very frequently, but when it makes the headlines, I generally try and see if that's a learning opportunity for my kids. Yes, that's super interesting. I like that. Just saying you own a, a chair or something out of this. And also that idea that other people are earning you money, because this is something, a mindset shift that I had a little bit later in life. My mom just had a normal working class job where you go to work, you get paid money, and then that's it. And we, we didn't know anyone who was a professional, like a doctor or anything like that. But we also didn't know anyone who ran their own business or invested. And so for many years, I was just stuck in this mindset of trading my an hour of my time gives me an hour of money. And that's fine. And as a doctor, you're trading an hour of your time for an above average amount of money. Although if you've been following what's going on with junior doctors and in fact doctors pay in the uk at the moment we've had up to 30 percent real times pay cuts over the last 10 years which is causing some issues but instead of trading your time directly one hour of time for one hour of money if you're invested you're basically making money 24 7 literally while you sleep and all you've got to do for that money is get a good portfolio set up a nice sensible balanced portfolio and then just keep investing for many years. That's it. And it sounds really simple, but it's very hard to do because then when you watch the news, it's like panic, everyone's selling. And Michael Burry, who predicted the big short housing crisis, he sold his entire stock portfolio. And what you got to realize is that 
Michael Barry may or may not be a genius, an ex-doctor, I believe, but he's playing a different game to everyone else, or at least me, right? Because I'm in this game for 10, 20, 30 years, okay? So it doesn't really matter what happens this year or next year. The key thing for me is staying the course. And Michael Barry is playing a totally different game where he's trying to predict the future, and he predicted the future very accurately once. But they also say that about people like Michael Burry that he's predicted 20 of the last two recessions. Which, yeah. <laughs> by which I mean, he, he's a little bit pessimistic. And if you throw enough negative predictions out there, eventually you'll time it with a downturn and you'll look like a genius. But yeah, he's predicted yeah. 20 of the last two recessions, I believe. Yeah, I've just been rereading re Fooled by Randomness at the moment, and that's just exactly along that lines. But what, in terms of the investing in the stock market and the way I think about it as well, which I talk to my kids about, is that when we, going back to that McDonald's kind of example, when we're spending money, that money goes to companies. Those companies are owned by people, and those people are the investors. So it's just this big flow. So as long as you believe that over time, people are just going to continue to spend that money is just going to continue to flow to companies. And that as long as you own a lot of companies, I have a diversified fund, you're going to get that constant flow. So as you mentioned, you go to sleep knowing that people are spending and that money is ultimately going to flow to investors. And I want my daughters to, to be at the receiving end of that sort of funnel. Yeah. And I think as well, I love your tree analogy because it's you know, a lot of people start investing and they invest on day one and they check it one week later and it's gone down 10%. They're like, oh my goodness, this is terrible. Why have I not made 15%? Doesn't work like that. It's literally like a tree, like an oak tree, not like a fast growing tree. It just takes a long time. It takes discipline, stay the course, don't do anything. There's a classic study. I think it was from Fidelity, Fidelity, a big investment manager. And they were like, we need to launch a campaign about our most profitable investors. So they searched their books. And they were like, these five investors are the most profitable investors in Fidelity. Let's find out how they did it. Phoned them up. And like, I'm really sorry, but she's passed away. And they were all dead. And the reason that they'd done so well is because their investment was just on autopilot. They had a nice asset allocation that worked for their individual circumstances. They just carried on investing, probably by direct debit, automatically every month and done absolutely nothing. Yes. And then suddenly that Fidelity story wasn't so good for Fidelity because the message was just do nothing, keep sure. investing and you'll be okay. But that's a bit of a, I never seen a reference for that, but it's sort of like investing folklore. Yeah, no, I've heard it. And again, that Mr. Lazy story in the book, it predicated on that real life, especially real life story. And you can understand it. I can 100% see how it works from that perspective. But yeah, going back to the tree analogy, it really works for investing. Because so in the book, I, we talked about on the last one, it has the three rules. So save one out of every 10, invest, and then be patient. And as you mentioned, be patient and getting kids to think like trees means they're not just going to look at the next day. But a tree analogy really works for investing because you say we've got these trees growing, but if there's a storm, say a stock market falls, your tree might get broken. But when there's a storm, we don't just go to hack down every single tree because there might be another storm in the future. <laughs> you just leave the tree and it grows back bigger and stronger and storms will come and go. But as long as you don't touch your trees, it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I say I really love that tree analogy because... Yeah, look, too many people think they're going to grow a forest overnight by yeah. stock picking genius. And yeah. they soon learn that stock picking is incredibly hard. And ultimately, just if you know nothing, buy everything. I think that's a Buffett. We haven't had a Buffett quote. We've done like 30 minutes and no Buffett quotes. I think that's a Buffett <laughs> quote if you keep it score. But what he's saying there is accepting that you know nothing, like you know nothing, I know nothing, and you no one can predict the future. Once you accept that, you just buy a little bit of everything. And over time, capitalism generally yeah. uh, prevails, does its job, and the trend is up and to the right. Not advice, do your own research, et cetera. Yeah. But yeah. 
Oh, maybe not a Buffett one, but Jack Bogle one. So the Vanguard kind of, don't try and find the needle in the haystack, just own the haystack. I think that's a fantastic one. Exactly. Yeah. We get to call bingo if we can slide in another quote from a famous investor because we've done Buffett, Bogle, and can we get a Charlie? I'll think of a Charlie Munger one while you're answering my next question, which is we need to talk about scams, right? Because scams are getting so sophisticated. And I know a few people, really smart people that have fallen for these scams. And I haven't talked about this at all with my kids because it seems a bit dark, but probably I should talk about scams, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I do. Again, I try not to make it too scary for them, but I really want to get this principle of if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And trying to tell them some stories of scams. So the classic one, which I changed the characters around, but in the US during the gold rush in the sort of mid 1800s, um, the person who got made the most money out of all of that was the person who told people, come, there's loads of gold to be found, come. And so they all came and in, they, he said when they got there, go to my store, buy your shovels, stay in my accommodation, buy my food. So he just promoted this. And most people never found any gold, but because he managed to get entice so many people and blow up the stories that how rich people would be. And so it just made so much money from that, but he became rich, but he didn't come wealthy. He lost it all very after. But for my kids, I always try and get them to understand that story. So if someone says there's a gold rush, just say, actually, who's telling you this? Why are they telling you this? And how are they going to be making money from telling you? So I have a little sort of fun things I do with my kids. We call it Scammy Sam. And so every now and then I'll try and put something, say to them, give them an offer that's too good to be true. And they have to shout out Scammy Sam. If not, they get a little bit of a con. So for example, I'd be like, oh, this morning we're going to have pancakes with ice cream and chocolate sauce come down. And they know that unless we're at a hotel and a buffet breakfast <laughs> they're not getting ice cream for breakfast and so they have to shout scammy sam if they don't they have to have the boring cornflakes with but just trying to get them to think of okay if something sounds too good to be true it probably is and if they have that mindset and questioning why something sounds so good i'm hoping that's going to avoid them being scammed i don't again scammers are being so clever it's not going to be completely obvious in many cases but i think just having that kind of mindset that actually, why why is someone offering me this? It sounds really good. What's in it for them? Yeah. What about if I came up to them and said, look, I'm going to sell you a piece of a blockchain code. It's called Perkins coin. And uh, in the future, it's going to be worth 1 billion pounds, but I can sell it to you today for just a million pounds. Would you call me out, Scammy Sam? And I'm indirectly asking you for your thoughts on crypto here. So yes, I would shout out Scammy Sam. But yeah, I've even talked to my kids about cryptocurrency and nfts etc but the main bit which kind of underlines all of that is the greater fall theorem and i love this topic and it's all about teaching them to say how do you make money how is that money getting created so we talked about the stock market of companies you give money to a company they use that money to in mcdonald's case opening new restaurants or creating new burgers so they make more money as they make more money they give that back to you in either growth or, or a dividend but with bitcoin and nfts Nothing's being produced. There's no creation. And therefore, it's only going to make money if I can find someone to buy it off me from a higher price. And okay, that's fine. So I can find someone. But then that person's got to find someone else to buy it from an even higher price. And then that person's got to find an even... And at some point, there's not going to be any more people. And that person's going to be the greater fool. And that's where it all falls down. And so I'm always told my daughters, right, 
try not to get into that game because you just don't want to be the greater fool. And everyone who's telling you how good it is to do it is because they don't want to be the greater fool. They've got to try and find someone to sell it to to make their money. So everyone who's invested in NFTs or Bitcoins is hugely incentivized to tell everyone how great it is because they need to be able to sell it at a higher price. Um, so that's why it's got this, there's always that danger. So I'm, I don't invest in the greater fool theorem for any bit at the moment. I'm cautious. Again, people want to take that risk. That's their prerogative. But I just want to make sure people understand what game they're playing. And I think a lot of people don't fully understand the game they're playing. Yeah, definitely. And I think with the crypto, it tracks a certain sort of crowd. So someone's like, yeah, I just bought a load of Bitcoin. I'm like, cool. So you've paid all, off all your high interest rate debt, like your credit card debt. Oh, I know. I bought the crypto on my credit card. They're like, okay, cool. Uh, you've got an emergency fund in place. Uh, what? Uh, I'm just going to use my credit card if I get ill. Okay, so you've got no income protection or life insurance. Nah, nah, I don't need that either. Okay, cool. And have you got like a sort of a good baseline of a nice, sensible stocks and shares portfolio? And this Bitcoin purchase is just like a speculative 5% of your portfolio where you just fancy rolling the dice. Nah, nah, I'm 100% in on crypto. Like you've basically skipped like level one, two, three, four, five, and six, and you just got straight to eight, and you're entering a highly speculative, volatile market, which you don't understand. And yeah, like you said, it is a non-productive asset. It doesn't make anything. And I don't buy any non-productive assets. I don't really hold it. I don't hold any gold, which is a non-productive asset. I don't hold any crypto. So yeah, I think, yeah, that, that's a really good summary. But also I think given that we, you and I are both investing for our kids and showing by the time they get to adults or that age, hopefully they've got a bit more of a sense of what's realistic and plausible. So I think a lot of people just have no idea of 10x is a reasonable number or 20x or 3x or whatever it may be times the money granted your three-year-old's a bit screwed <laughs> with her 10x and in... don't worry it come up and will come i'm sure of it yeah she's only had three years it's early yeah, days yeah. but hopefully they've got then that sense of okay if i've been doing this for many years and i'm getting i don't know hopefully sort of seven to ten percent on average over that period of time if someone comes and says i can get 100 percent return over one year they're going to be like something sounds a bit Odd. I want to at least investigate it a lot more than just believing that it's possible and therefore jump on the ship. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's really interesting. I haven't really had that discussion with them. And I also feel like a bit like boring dad because I feel like out there somewhere is crypto dad who's like driving around in a Lambo, maybe. And then I'm like boring dad saying, no, cost, low cost diversified portfolio for you, my child. But yeah. hopefully over the long term, boring dad will, will win. That's a really important point, though, because there are going to be those crypto dads that are driving the Lamborghinis. But what they're not going to see is the nine other crypto dads who have lost their family savings and going through the financial debt. And that's the hardest part. We have to really shine a light on. They're only going to get exposed to the survivorship <laughs> bias. Yeah. And we're so few and far between. And same with investing the active managers. We only ever get to see the good ones. All the other ones have disappeared. Absolutely. So, Survivorship by such an important concept, especially for active managers as well, because yeah, if a fund doesn't do well, they just shut it down and then, oh yeah. But hopefully our readers are well-versed on survivorship bias because we spend all our time studying academic papers to improve the care of our patients, or occasionally we skim read the abstract of something and then look at someone else's interpretation of it. That was so useful. I'm on your newsletter and I love, where's the best place to reach you? Where do I buy the book? And Anything else you want to tell the readers about to help not just themselves, but their children. And if you don't have children, honestly, I think this stuff is really relevant for all of us. 
Yeah, no, thanks. So yeah, my web website is freesavings.com. So I write weekly, maybe fortnightly newsletter, which covers a new topic to help parents teach their kids about money. And as you say, it's aimed at parents to help empower them to learn something new in such a way that then they can teach their kids. So hopefully it's doing two generations in one. And it covers from the basics of just from saving and budgeting to recently talking about the 2008 financial crisis and why that happened. But then the book is for kids, seven to 13 year olds, but hopefully parents read it with their kids and that's available on Amazon. But for people who want to buy it in bulk for schools or clients or colleagues, then you can get a bulk discount on my website again, bluetreesavings.com. Love it. Thanks so much for your time. Enjoy the sunshine. I'm off to find my gloves because my hands have still not warmed up. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Take care, Will.